A warning before we begin. This podcast is explicit in every way. Last time on Louder Than a Riot. He was always like the best freestyler in the city. I need wheels. And the next thing we know, Matt getting signed to No Limit. Keep his name confidential. The cops no Limit was really kind of doing like, you know, just New Orleans gangster music. It was a bit of an odd peg for Mac. We did a few shows at the club, Mercedes. People were getting a little rowdier. And the next thing you know, it was like a pow. I had like four policemen, three with pistols, one with a shotgun, come run charging, running at me, talking about get on the ground, get on the ground, get on the ground. Me in my head, I'm thinking, well, okay, they're gonna take him down to question, and they'll probably he'll probably be home in about five, ten minutes, you know, because we know he didn't do anything. The person to be interviewed is um, McKinley J. Phipps. What kind of performing do you do? I rap. You're a rap singer? Yeah. Max sitting in a jail cell. He's been charged with the murder of Baron Victor Jr. Even though someone else confessed to shooting Baron that night, Mac was the one headed to court to fight for his freedom. But to understand what Mac was about to be up against next, we got to break down the history of rap lyrics being weaponized, not by rappers dissing each other or talking slick on the mic, but by the criminal justice system policing black creativity. Ice-T, who's probably best known today for playing a cop on Law & Order SVU, See, he knows more about this than probably anybody. That's because back in the day, one of his songs triggered law enforcement all across the country. Cop killer! Yep, Cop Killer from Body Count. The metal band that Ice-T started fronting in the early 90s. And man, in 1992, the backlash over this song about one man's revenge fantasy to kill corrupt police officers, and it was huge. Both President George H.W. Bush and Vice President Dan Quayle condemned. News headlines were blowing up all over the place, questioning if rap was out of control. Never mind the fact that this song was unmistakably heavy metal. Yeah, just the fact that Body Count's lead singer was a known rapper, that was enough. Many of these people are policemen from around the country who want Warner Brothers Records to yank the album Body Count off store shelves. Last week, police groups in Texas called for a boycott of all products made by Time requested that the song be banned from store Mm -hmm. shelves. Pressure from record label shareholders, boycotts from police unions, even death threats? It became too much. Ice-T told Time Warner to pull the record off the shelves. And mainstream America's fascination with and fear of gangster rap it reached an all-time high. The public outcry was, you know, just enormous. People were losing record contracts, boycotts were happening, and concerts were being canceled. That's Carrie Fried. She's a psychology professor at Winona State University in Minnesota. And it was just really apparent that it wasn't really just the content of the songs. People were reacting to these songs in a way that they weren't in other sort of genres or contexts. Back in 92, Carrie was just starting in on her graduate studies, and she was about as far from an iced tea fan as you can get. But something about the backlash to Cop Killer, it jogged a memory from her childhood. My parents always listened to folk music, 
And there were always songs about killers and glamorizing them, you know, even creepy songs about people who killed sheriffs and sheriff deputies. And no one thought anything of it, you know, it was just a song. She thought about one song in particular, a folk song that was a hit from the early 60s, Bad Man's Blunder by the Kingston Trio. Three dorky white guys wearing plaid shirts and playing guitars. And they had this song about a guy who just, because he's feeling in a bad mood, he goes out and shoots a deputy sheriff. And it's this weird, lighthearted little song. Well, early one evening, I was rolling around. I was feeling kind of mean. I shot the deputy down. They just kind of popped into my head when I was hearing all these negative reactions to the rap music of why, as a kid, did no one object to me listening to this song? So Carrie, she created a simple study. The lyrics were just, they were stuck in my head. So I typed them up. Early one evening, I was strolling along. I was feeling kind of mean. I shot a deputy down. Stroll along home. I went to bed. I laid my pistol up under my head. And then, honestly, I Xeroxed the thing, probably on departmental budget I wasn't supposed to. On half of the pages, Carrie wrote, this is a rap song. On the other half, this is a country song. And the next page, I just had a series of questions. Is this song offensive? You know, should we ban this kind of song? Uh, Would you let your kids listen to this kind of song? Does this kind of song pose a danger to society? Bang, you're dead. When subjects thought the song was a rap song, or when they associated it with a black artist, they were significantly more likely to say, this poses a danger. You know, we should uh, ban these kinds of songs. I don't want my kids listening to it. If you said it was a country song, or they were associated with a white artist, by and large, people didn't have a problem with it. I'm Rodney Carmichael. I'm Cindy Madden. From NPR Music, This is Louder Than a Riot. Where we trace the collision of rhyme and punishment in America. In this episode, we look at a phenomenon that's become common practice in courtrooms all over the country. The use of rap lyrics as state's evidence to convict the artists of crimes. And for Mac, it becomes the ultimate irony when his imagination leads to his incarceration. For me, it was just like, damn. I've lived my whole life trying to stay out of jail so I can pursue my dreams, and here it is, my dream was being used against me in court. This message comes from NPR sponsor Yogi T. We know that sometimes finding a moment for yourself isn't so simple, but self-care doesn't have to be complicated. In fact, it can be as simple as brewing yourself a warm, comforting cup of Yogi Honey Lavender Stress Relief Tea. With soothing aromatics like lavender, chamomile, and lemon balm, this relaxing herbal tea blend encourages you to take a moment to pause, step away from the chaos of the day, and sip your way to a more stress-free state of mind. Find your flow with Yogi Tea. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Marguerite Casey Foundation, creating greater freedom for changemakers to create a truly representative economy. Marguerite Casey Foundation believes working people and their families should have the power to shape our institutions, our democracy, and our economy. Shifting power, powering freedom. Learn more about the foundation at www.caseygrants.org and connect with the foundation on Twitter at Casey Grants and on Facebook. 
Mac's trial began on September 10, 2001, just one day before the Twin Towers fell in Manhattan. And Aaron Zachmeyer, he was a 26-year-old reporter for the Slidell Century News at the time when he got a call about the case from a prosecutor in the DA's office. He considered it a really high-profile case and one that was going to be very easy for his office. I don't remember the exact words, but he said, the defendant is named Mac the Camouflage Assassin. Slam dunk. He says everybody in town was talking about the case. And they seem to view it as New Orleans spilling into their quiet, calm communities. Slidell liked to think of itself as a sleepy little town where you could escape from the chaos of New Orleans. The trial took place in the St. Tammany Parish Courthouse. The courtroom was packed. Um, it was a low, dingy 1960s building. I have a picture in my head of wood paneling. Mac's brother Chad remembers how much support Mac had packed inside that courtroom. My uncles and aunts and grandparents and parents and elderly people who, most of them ministers and, and people in the church, and we were sitting like five or six rows back in the, in the courtroom. First day was jury selection. They threw out anyone who had family members who had, who had been arrested. They threw out anyone who expressed any kind of negative opinion about police. It ended up being an all-white jury. Not exactly Mac's peers, but even in the position he was in, Mac was prepared to give them the benefit of the doubt. I don't think that these people were just like, you know, we're white, he's black, uh, we hate him, so we're going to send him to prison. No. I just think that some people tend to have such a favorable, it's kind of like a childlike favorability of the, of the police that I don't think they think, ah, hell, I'm going to just be wrong. I don't think that some people believe the police make mistakes. And representing the state, was a prosecutor named Bruce Deering. He was aggressive. He was really confident in himself. The prosecutor laid out the case against Mack in the state's opening argument, reenacted here from court transcripts. Murder, murder, kill, kill. Pull the trigger, put a bullet in your head. Those are some of the lyrics that this defendant chooses to rap when he performs. This is the self-proclaimed camouflaged assassin. He pushed the assassin moniker over and over and over and over again. That was his main argument. At the conclusion of this trial, I am going to ask you to rip the camouflage from this assassin and reveal him as the killer that he is. Mac couldn't believe what was happening. For me, it was just like, damn. I haven't lived my whole life trying to stay out of jail so I can pursue my dreams. And here it is, my dream was being used against me in court. And I, I felt kind of played because I was just like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Yeah, and remember Mac, he switched his whole style up when he got with No Limit. I used to rap about all kinds of stuff. I used to rap about trying to save the world. I used to rap about all types of stuff growing up. You know, and that was actually my favorite type what they would call today a uh, conscious hip-hop or whatnot. 
That was my favorite type of hip-hop. That's what I used to do. That's what I was doing before I signed with No Limit. I didn't seem to be uh, able to break through back then with that. But here, I start making the type of music that's selling. And all of a sudden, this music is being used against me in court. And it's like, God damn. Also in that opening statement, the prosecutor, Bruce Deering, he introduced the confession of Thomas Williams. And as we told you in the last episode, days after Mac's arrest, his security guard confessed to shooting Baron Victor in self-defense. I reacted and fired. But the prosecutor argued that Thomas Williams was a career criminal and unreliable. He was a felon, so he couldn't be trusted. They said that he was um, taking the fall for Mac, which seemed strange to everyone. Why would anyone do that? We reached out to Prosecutor Bruce Deering for an interview, but he declined. Now, key to the state's case was the testimony of two eyewitnesses. The first witness the state called was Nathaniel Tillerson, cousin of Baron Victor Jr. Nathaniel testified that on the night of the shooting, he and his cousin got to Club Mercedes around 11 p.m. They played some pool, then started dancing when a fight broke out. Baron was in the middle of it when, according to Nathaniel, Mac came from the side and shot his cousin in the shoulder. How do you know it was the defendant that did that, the prosecutor asked. Because I looked dead in his eyes to see him, Nathaniel said. The second eyewitness key to the case against Mac was Yulon James. And she's a young nursing student who had administered CPR to Baron on the night of this shooting. Couldn't forget Yulon because she was hugely pregnant and she was terrified up on the stand. At the time of the trial, Yulon was 25 years old. She'd been at Club Mercedes that night because her boyfriend was a promoter of the show. He'd been working with Mac. She knew Mac too, which made it all the more damning when she told the jury that when the fight broke out, she glanced up and saw Mac in the crowd. Here's a reenactment from the transcript, starting with Assistant DA Bruce Deering. Could you tell us anything that you would recognize as being perhaps significant? Yeah, I seen a gun on him. And did you see anything come out of that gun? Sparks. Pregnant, with a tiny voice, seemingly being led by the prosecutor. I don't think she was doing a good enough job for his taste. So he really seemed to be coaxing her into answering questions the way he wanted them answered. So with no murder weapon and no physical evidence, the crux of the state's argument was about his lyrics. I think they leaned on on the stage name, the Mac, the Camouflage Assassin, because it was so easy. And I imagine they thought that it was an easy way to scare the jury, to turn a person into a, into a monster. He did a good job. Mac's defense tried to counteract the prosecution's attacks. A lot of Mac's defense was based on who he was as a person. He hadn't been in trouble with the law. His lawyer said that, that, he, um, that he often read poetry in cafes. That seemed like laying it on a little thick. As crazy as this may sound, I tried to emotionally detach myself from the trial. So when I was sitting in trial... I was in attorney mode. I was like actually sitting there listening and whispering to my lawyer the things I want him to ask him next. 
But in the end, Mac's lawyer never called one single witness to the stand during the trial. He was like, listen, uh, our strongest piece of evidence is the videotape confession, and the prosecutor has already presented it. And he was like, so the jury has already heard our strongest piece of evidence. He said, so at this point, all you can do is take away from it. Yeah, Mac's lawyer said the worst thing that could happen is if they call witnesses whose stories don't line up with the confession. He said, because if we put witnesses up there and they don't line up with uh, what this guy is saying on the videotape confession, then we blow the case. And he thought that, that was the right strategy. He thought that I was going to get a non guilty verdict without presenting any witnesses. Max lawyer presented his closing argument, and I'm going to quote from it here. The state's theory is akin to Frank Sinatra shooting an audience member in a Vegas nightclub. It makes no sense. Shoot and kill someone in front of his mother? That is their theory. Meanwhile, the state did everything they could to make Mac look as gangsta as possible. In his closing argument, Bruce Deering leaned back into Mac's lyrics again. This defendant is the same man whose message, again, is murder, murder kill kill you f with me you get a bullet in your brain max lawyers object and try to argue for a mistrial when the state uses his lyrics they get denied you don't have to be a genius to figure out that one plus one equals two as the jury weighed the evidence max family waited Uh, There were lots of family members singing religious songs, uh, embracing each other, crying. It was very emotional. Remember, Mac was charged with second-degree murder, but the judge gave the jury the option to convict on a lesser charge of manslaughter if the crime was, quote, committed in sudden passion or heat of blood. Inside, the jury deliberated until close to midnight. They had to weigh the evidence the state's eyewitnesses, and Mac's lyrics on one hand, versus Mac having no criminal record and another man confessing to the crime on the other. When the jury came back, the verdict was guilty of manslaughter. I was just numb. I was crying like, I, I don't think I ever cried. That, I don't think I ever cried like that in my life. I just dropped my head. It blowing down my eyes. It's like I was a kid again. The jury count was 10 to 2. Now, usually every juror needs to agree on a guilty verdict. But in 2001, Louisiana was one of only two states left in the country where jury verdicts did not have to be unanimous. What went through your mind when you heard the verdict being read? Um, disbelief. I was angry because I shouted out in the court, uh, my son didn't do this. I kept screaming, my son didn't do this. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't, I couldn't believe it, but... They didn't know Max, so, you know, you almost want to shake the head and tell him, you know, he's not really like that. But, you know, how can you change people's perspective of somebody when they're only going by what they hear? I was like, maybe he'll give me 10 years. Maybe. When it came time to sentence him, the judge said, after reviewing all the sentencing guidelines, I sentenced the defendant to 30 years hard labor. Shit, that man said, 30 years hard labor. My mouth just flew wide open like, wow. I was 24 years old at the time. I was like, damn. I was just trying to hold everybody together. All my children was crying. 
I say, my son didn't do this. The person who did this is going to walk away a free man while my son has to bear his burden. You give somebody who don't have no police records 30 years? I couldn't figure that out. I, I definitely couldn't figure that out. Here's Mac's brother, Chad, again. The whole thing, looking back at it, was a sham trial from beginning to end. I was young at the time. I didn't know much about the courtroom. I thought there was actually justice in the courtroom. And if you're not guilty, they set you free. Because cause in my mind at that time, I thought justice will prevail. I was sadly mistaken. I couldn't believe it. And I went back to the jail when they brought me back. And I was just angry, man. I was angry with God more than anything. I was just angry. I was like, dude, how could you do this to me? And I think that night, I didn't believe in anything. I didn't believe in people no more. I didn't believe in the system anymore. I didn't believe in nothing. Everything was just dark. And I remember hearing the same song that uh, I heard in the squad call on my way to the court. The same song was playing on the radio. And that was uh, Lifetime by uh, Maxwell. Support for NPR and the following message come from Quantacy and Associates, a full-service creative agency and studio helping brands grow by pushing culture in the right direction while introducing a new era of thinking. With a business model designed to help companies excel, they specialize in melding the worlds of marketing, content, technology, and influence. Quantacy works with brands of all sizes, ranging from Fortune 100 clients, public figures, and small businesses. Find out more at Quantacy.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor, WeTransfer. We all have doubts, but where do they belong? Are they simply to be surfaced and forgotten? WeTransfer believes your doubt needs a place where it can grow into something useful. And WeTransfer's set of tools can help you do just that by collecting, sketching, presenting, and sharing your thoughts with the world. It's where doubt transforms into ideas. Meet, paste, paper, and collect by WeTransfer. Go to tools2moveideas.com to learn more. The past is never past, and every headline has a history. I'm Ramtin Arablouei. I'm Randa Abdel Fattah, and we're the hosts of Throughline, NPR's history podcast. Each week, we go back in time to better understand the present, bringing lesser-known stories and perspectives to the surface. Subscribe and listen to Throughline from NPR. Max has been in prison for 20 years, but witnesses are still coming out of the woodwork to tell a different side of the story than the prosecution did. My name is Monique Hart. I am from Slidell, Louisiana. Just a couple of months ago, Monique posted on Max's official Instagram that she was at Club Mercedes the night Baron Victor Jr. was shot. Monique says the events of that night, they've never left her. It just would pop up in my mind sometimes, just scroll through like Instagram, and I just seen a, a picture, and that brought it back up again. This is the first time Monique's speaking out publicly. She had never met Mac before the day of the Club Mercedes performance. So when he showed up at her friend's house before the show, she was surprised. But it wasn't just that. The strange thing is, 
the entire time he was um, he was there, he was reading a book. And I remember asking him if he drank or if he smoked, and you know, just and he said no. And he did not like look up from that book, except for to explain to me some parts of the book. <laughs> and and that's the only thing that I remember about him. I'm like he 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 was like a, a righteous type person. He was quiet, and you know you would think, okay, a rapper. People place rappers in this box and they, you know, stereotype them. And that wasn't him. <laughs> like Monique, Jamie Wilson was at Club Mercedes that night, too. So what did you know about Mac at the time? Were you a fan? Yeah. I mean, I was a fan of anybody, No Limit, and probably any rapper. I was 19. <laughs> I went to a lot of concerts, just like I attended that one. Jamie and Monique don't know each other. But like Monique, she was at the club that night to have fun with her friends. And um, my mom gave me permission to go. And me and my best friend who lived across the street, we put on matching skirts and we went. (laughs) Our town is small, so anytime there was anything going on, everybody in town would go. The club was like, it wasn't exactly a hole in the wall for Louisiana, but compared to things that I've seen now, definitely a hole in the wall. You know, the stage was small, and, and the bar was in the middle, and you can surround the bar, like, around on the dance floor. Everybody was kind of packed in the club, and it was just locals. We had just gotten drinks, and the song was ending. We had missed most of it, trying to get a drink. I remember we were complaining about that. And um, Max started to come off of the stage. And I got excited. You know, I was like, he's coming down to meet the people. You know, he's going to shake somebody's hand. You know, I'm 19. And he came through the crowd and he was like, how you guys doing? And I'm I'm the dork. So I'm like, fine. And then it's like seconds later, it felt like, or maybe a minute or two, the shots rang out. I remember he was still right there. Like, this is going on. And so he kind of kind of like get down you know and I ducked and um you know I was freaking out on the floor I'm like oh my god are we gonna die at the concert like oh my god oh my god oh my god Monique says she was also next to Mac the thing that has never left my mind was we were within arm's reach when the gunshots started somebody that was laying there with us they was like be cool so I, I just got still you know And then as Mac was getting up, he drew a weapon and was like, where's my mom? Where's mama? He was asking, where's his mama? We ran out together, so there was no way. If gunshots are behind me and he's within arm's reach of me, there's no way he should have never been involved or even considered as a suspect. Do you remember what he uh, he looked like, or could you see his hands, or any of that? Well, no, but if his body is, if I can see his body, and the gunshots are behind me, and we're close to the door, Mm -hmm. I mean, (laughs) we were at the exit. The gunshots were were closer up towards the other side of the club. Outside, people were scattering with the quickness. Everybody just ran and, and... Got in the cars. Did you um? Did you think about going to the police with with your uh, story? Yes. Yeah, so when I called, I didn't get a call back. 
Um, what did you tell the police when you when you called? That I was at the event and I just wanted to make a statement. After that, Monique says rumors started spreading about witnesses being threatened by the police. So she decided to leave it alone. As for Jamie... I naturally went home and told my mom. I told her the whole story from top to bottom. And then the next day I remember being asleep and she was like, wake up or whatever. She was like, you have to go down here. And I'm like, down where? You know, she was like, you have to tell them what happened. The, the same thing that you told me last night, that stuff is on the news. Jamie's mom drove her down to the station where they waited for a detective to take her statement. They made us wait a while, I remember, because I was just nervous the whole time. She says the detective did anything but put her at ease. I've never felt so small before in my life, ever. And I had high self-esteem. I was modeling at the time. There was, you know, been, he made me feel so small. I was like, I'm telling the truth. And I, I, I remember I kept turning to my mom. I was like, Mom, you know I'm telling the truth. I told you the same thing that night. I, I remember telling her I didn't want to be there. I think he called me a liar at one point. I know he used liar or you lied or something to that nature. And from there, it just made my heart flutter. And then I remember us both at one point feeling disrespected. And that's when she finally said what I wanted her to say. Let's go. It's like he was upset that we existed, that that there was someone that is saying no to everything that they're saying. You know, it's like you can tell that they just they didn't want to listen. They just didn't want to hear. Jamie didn't give up, though. She reached out to Mac's lawyer, said she'd be willing to testify. And that's when things really started going left. She started to get pulled over constantly by the police. They used to search my car and stuff. And I'm like, what are you, I'm 19 years old. I'm in school. What are you doing? Like, One cop stayed on her. It wasn't until he pulled me over for what is now about the fourth, fifth, or maybe sixth time. And when he was letting me go, he said, um... You wouldn't be getting pulled over if you would just mind your business. And I was like, what are you talking about? He was like, aren't you a witness for, you know, woot the woot the woot? But yeah, he was the person that gave me a hint as to what was going on. I was present every court date. I heard like um, a lot of the back and forth about his music and the lyrics in his music and but um, I was never ever to take the um, stand. What, what did you, so man, you sat through the whole trial. What did you think about how it was going? I was horrible. We walked out a lot of times. Why? I cried a lot of times just being young and just no right from wrong. And then, that, you know, it was just, I was still young. So wrong was so wrong to me, you know, it's like, and I it, it was breaking my heart. I wonder a lot, you know, about the, individuals who know because I I know that the prosecutors I know that a lot of them know deep down in their heart I even the jurors I feel like your conscience has to talk to you so I question if they believe in karma if they believe in God do you do you have a son do you have a a husband how would you feel if this was your husband or your child I often just question what happens to people like that you know threw somebody's life away and yeah and I feel like they just wanted to nail the rapper you know just get the big fish why throw why keep the trout and you can get a bass now Jamie and Monique 
They tell a completely different story than the two eyewitnesses that testified at trial. The ones who claimed they saw Max shoot Baron Victor Jr. And one person who spent more time than anybody trying to set the story straight is crime writer David Lohr. You've been hearing his recorded interviews with Mac throughout this episode. David even tracked down Yulon James, the young woman who was pregnant when she took the stand and said that she was there at the club and saw sparks fly out of Mac's gun. But in 2013, she actually recanted her testimony in a sworn affidavit. And at the time, she said she felt very pressured to to say that she had saw something. She said she initially told the police, well, no, you know, I didn't see what happened. Uh, I have no idea. And they're like, well, you were right there. You know, you had to have seen something. And they they kept pressuring her and pressuring her. And even uh, right up until trial, uh, they threatened to charge her if she didn't testify. They said, we'll file an obstruction charge, you know, against you if you don't get up on stand and, and say what we want you to say. And at the time, she was pregnant uh, as it was going to trial, and and she claims the DA told her at that time, he's like, you know, if you don't get up there and and testify, you're going to have that baby behind bars. Now, we reached out to Yulon James ourselves, and even after all of these years, she told me personally that she's scared to say any more than she's already said. The baby that she was pregnant with when she took the stand back during Mac's trial is a young adult now. And she worries about what can happen to people who speak out in Slidell. David started hearing stories like this time and time again. People like Yulon, who said they were pressured to cooperate. It was just kind of a crazy thing, because if you look at all the different people in this case that they wanted to testify, almost every single one of them claims they were threatened with an obstruction charge uh, if they didn't get up on the stand or, or didn't make a statement that the DA wanted them to make. You know, taking taking these individually, you, you don't think a lot of them because, you know, a lot of people will, will claim something. But, you know, when you look at this many people telling you the exact same thing, people who don't know each other, who don't even communicate with each other anymore, you know, there, there's something to it. The more David learned about Max's case, the more he started to question Max's guilt. Let's run it down. Mac had no criminal history and there was no physical evidence linking him to the crime. Like, take the guns presented at trial. They weren't the murder weapon. And that's including the one Max said he was carrying at the club and lied to investigators about. And if there were questions about whether or not Mac was guilty, David was going to run them down. My goal from the get-go was to methodically go through all of the reports and, and try to track down and speak with every single person, uh, you know, that the authorities had spoken with. When it came to the state's other eyewitnesses, like the victim's cousin, Nathaniel Tillerson, David says there was a problem. From statement to statement, Nathaniel's versions of events kept changing. All three stories were different, but if you look at the stories, each one, you know, placed Mac more and more as the person uh, responsible for the crime. So what was really going on? And while this witness intimidation for one conviction, what David started to believe it wasn't unique to Mac's case. And what he discovered was this is how the D.A. Walter Reed and the sheriff Jack Strain operated all the time. What they like to do here is is hold a sledgehammer over your head. You know, the D.A. will say, hey, you know what? Uh, We're going to seek life imprisonment for what you did. Or you could admit you're guilty and do 10 years. It's like they'll do anything that they can to get a conviction. And everybody knew St. Tammany Parish you know, you get arrested for a crime in St. Tammany Parish and you're poor or you're black, you're screwed. 
This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who specialize in issues such as isolation, depression, stress, anxiety, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment when you need professional help. Get help at your own time and your own pace. Schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. Visit BetterHelp.com louder to learn more and get 10% off your first month. You're probably used to scrolling through social media, catching headlines and bits and pieces. And that's a good way to follow the chatter, maybe kill a few hours, but you need a better way to understand the news. That's why NPR has a new daily podcast. It's called Consider This. We don't just catch you up on what's happening. We help you make sense of the day. Because once things make sense, you can get off your phone, maybe go for a walk or something. Listen to Consider This from NPR every day. In one of their recorded prison phone calls, crime reporter David Lohr asked Mac about his lyrics being read out loud in court. How big of a a role do you think uh, your music played uh, in securing your conviction by the prosecution? I didn't have any criminal history for them to uh, look into, so I, I guess, you know, when you're picking for straw, when you're grasping for straw, I guess they just was like, well, we have to find some indication that this person has a dark side. So that's when they turn to the music. Assassination, the enemy lives. Cock and back, bust, silly, breathless. I'm on some next shit, fulfilling that wish. I'm adversary in forms, the gag walls. I sat calm, it's understood. Across the country, at an alarming rate, young men of color are having their rap lyrics introduced as evidence in criminal cases. Now, Eric Nielsen studies African-American literature and hip-hop culture, especially as it intersects with policing. It is um, time and time again leading to convictions, often when there is little other evidence. This is unfair. It is racist. And no other musical form, no other fictional form, musical or otherwise, is used like this Um, in courts. Eric's been called by defense attorneys to testify in dozens of trials all over the country, especially when rap lyrics get introduced as evidence. And although he didn't work on Mac's trial back in the day, still, Eric says this case is one of the most egregious he's ever seen. They relied on Mac Phipps's uh, fictional persona um, as they tried him. They conflated the author with the character, and they did so intentionally talking about him as the assassin, the camouflage assassin, which is, by the way, is a a name he got from kung fu movies. They started bringing in his lyrics, murder, murder, kill, kill. Murder, murder, kill, kill. Of course, that's from the song with the same name. But the second half of the line, the prosecution quoted, you fuck with me, you get a bullet in your brain. Well, that's from a completely different song called Shell Shock. The verse quoted, it's not even about Mac. It's about Mac's dad, Vietnam vet McKinley Phipps Sr. But peep this. The prosecution even changed the lyrics to make them sound self-incriminating. See, Mac actually never raps the words, you fuck with me, you get a bullet in your brain. In fact, the prosecutor switches up the whole context. Take a listen. 
Big Mac, that's my daddy, rotten dirty. Straight up soldier, you heard me? Ain't no secret, one of the realest niggas I creep with. That's my daddy, he says. See, he's personifying his father's experiences as a veteran of the war in Vietnam. And then, 10 seconds later, you fuck with me, he'll give you a bullet in your brain. Not only did they cherry-pick lyrics, which is common in this, right? Just take a line, forget about all of the context. But in this case, they actually took lines from different songs change them somewhat and then put them together as if they had come from the same song and and you know in doing so dramatically changed um, the meaning of the lyrics and that was problematic because what we know um, is that the character that Mac presented in his lyrics had nothing to do with the person who authored them not only that the trial was taking place in September 2001 Literally the week of the 9-11 attacks. If you looked at the front page of the Times-Picayune on September 19th, you'd have seen a large, grainy photo of Osama bin Laden, a report about the Bush administration's newly named War on Terror. And then, a single headline at the bottom left corner reads, Rapper identified as killer at concert. We talked about this with one of Mac's lawyers, Kevin Boucher, and he says this is one of the most difficult trials he's ever been through. anything different no i cannot see a more difficult scenario to try a homicide case with in america and here you have the prosecutor constantly referring to mac as an assassin mac's team actually tried to get the case dismissed because the characterization man it was just too raw but the judge overruled it all he did however was set the table for every other prosecutor in america to put rap culture on trial at every single opportunity. I cannot begin to tell you how many appeals I've handled since where the the defendant gets convicted not because the evidence was so strong, but because of what he decided to put in his social media, in his rap videos, in her rap videos, whatever. This inherent bias against rap and the image that it conjures is becoming a common weapon in a prosecutor's arsenal. Almost daily, we continue to learn of new cases. Yeah, Andrea Dennis... She knows all too well. I am a professor of law at the University of Georgia Law. Yeah, she's also a former assistant federal public defender and co-author, along with Eric Nielsen, of the book Rap on Trial, Race, Lyrics, and Guilt in America. Our research at present, um, we believe, has only revealed the tip of the iceberg. Since 2006, they found more than 500 cases from almost every state. Man, that's a lot of rappers catching cases. But we ain't just talking professional rap stars when it comes to this stuff. In the vast majority of these cases, it's your average, ordinary, uh, young black or Latino man. Just ordinary, ordinary citizens. You're jotting down lyrics in your journal. That could be used against you. Posting verses for the ground. Oh, that's admissible, bro. Now, Andrea says there's a bunch of different ways that the government uses lyrics against defendants at trial. One set of cases are those that are considered to be autobiographical or confessions. Lyrics can even be used to prove gang membership or to show that someone is of dangerous or bad character. Sometimes the state argues that the actual lyrics are a threat. The lyrics themselves are essentially a crime. And of course, there are cases like Max. In which the government says that the lyrics are indicative of an individual's intent or mindset or motive to commit the crime. 
Now, this trend, according to Eric Nielsen, it's not disappearing anytime soon. As a legal tactic, it's just too effective at persuading juries. I think one of the reasons why people um, are willing to read those lyrics as autobiography is because they map to commonly held stereotypes about the inherent criminality of young black and young Hispanic men. And so I think it becomes very easy for people to hear the lyrics and think to themselves, yeah, that sounds about right. I also think that many people have a difficult time believing that these young men are capable of learning and mastering a highly sophisticated, complex art form. And so if you don't see them as artists, then it's difficult to read their lyrics and hear figurative language, you know, to hear metaphor. We are, but if you begin with the assumption that these young men are not bright enough to produce something that's this sophisticated, then the fallback, the obvious position from there is, oh, well, they're just rapping about things they've done. Now, let that assumption sink in, that these men are not sophisticated enough, not creative enough. Okay, but can I play devil's advocate for a minute, Sid? Uh, the devil is a lie, but go off. Okay, so here's the paradox, right? I mean, the thing is that there really is an expectation a lot of times within hip-hop that you be about what you rap about. Mm. That's an expectation that no artist in any other genre face. Am I right? Yeah, but the line between artistic license and authenticity when it comes to using rap lyrics is one that prosecutors love to blur for a jury, especially a jury that holds inherent bias against the genre in the first place. But this idea that all rappers are basically just criminals who go in the booth and dry snitch on record, it's really so absurd that it's almost laughable. First things first, I do not care that you're a multi-platinum selling rapper, Gunrack. That's Keegan-Michael Key from Comedy Central's Key and Peele, playing a suit-and-tie detective interrogating Jordan Peele, who's in the role of a stereotypical gangster rapper named Gunrack. Yeah, the sketch is called Rap Album Confessions. Yep, and it's exactly as advertised. I killed Darnell, yeah, I shot him with my knife. I shot him nine times, 9 p.m. on the dime. And by the way, it was November night. Now he's practically rapping how the murder went down word for word on tape. And the detective knows he's got him. But then Gunrack looks at the detective with a straight face and says, that don't mean nothing. I got a vivid imagination. The name of the album is I Killed Darnell Simmons. It's a concept album. A concept? That's a picture of you. A picture of you. And behind you is Darnell Simmons' body. Now, this is comedy, but the reality is hip-hop's creative license is being revoked by the justice system every day. No other genre is plagued or policed by the expectation that artists walk it like they talk it. Or rap it or sing it. Exactly. Like Ice-T said, it's freedom of speech. Just watch what you say. This is not a First Amendment issue with racial implications. It is a racial issue with First Amendment implications. It's a new permutation on a very, very old dynamic. The tactic of 
introducing lyrics as autobiography in order to put somebody in prison, that's a new tactic. Uh, but the fact that we see rap being targeted and black expression being targeted, that is nothing new. Uh, black expression um, sends shivers through white America still, it seems. Yeah, black folk have always been feared and fetishized as outlaw figures in popular culture. It predates rap, goes back at least as far as the legend of Stagger Lee. Now Stagger Lee, he was a bad man. He wanted the whole round world to know. Yeah, Stagger Lee, the original thug of American folklore, long before Tupac got it tatted across his torso. Now Stagger Lee, Lord and Billy Lyon. And as the story goes, Stagger Lee Shelton was a St. Louis scalawag who murdered a man in 1895 for snatching his Stetson hat. He said, Stagger Lee, Stagger Lee, please don't take my life. Says I got two little babies and a darling loving wife. He's a bad man. Oh, cruel Stagger Lee. Eventually he died in prison. But mythologized in song, man, he became the trickster god of the 20th century. And the song Stagger Lee would end up being recorded over 400 times by folk and blues artists. And it's told in rhymed form from the first-person perspective. It's violent. They shot him three times in the shoulder, Lord. Shot him three times in the side. It's, it's funny at times. It's hypersexual. It reads like gangster rap. I said, say, motherfucker, do you know who I am? He said, hell no, nigga, I don't give a goddamn. But it's over a hundred years old. Take all that and mix in the urban fiction of Donald Goins and Iceberg Slim. The urban underworld where hustlers and pimps reign supreme. And so that that's another artistic tradition that rappers are, are drawing from. Pull in some inspiration from the black arts movement on one end and black exploitation films on the other. The idea is to say, you know, what you're seeing here is really just, um, you know, in some cases, centuries um, of evolution of an art form. And so you need to start from that perspective and understand that even if individual rappers can't tell you all of the antecedents of their art, they exist. And it's a very, very rich, complex tradition that they're drawing from. A rich, complex tradition that hip-hop is adding to, that's now used in court against them. Yeah, and this is the tradition that Max stepped into in No Limit. I mean, even as he leaned into those gangster tropes, there was still a spirit of resistance in his music. You hear it a bit in his first No Limit album, but, man, it really starts to cook on the follow-up, World War III. Take this song, Battle Cry. That's some new millennial blues right there. 
Almost 20 years after the message, you hear Mac echoing the same pain, the same reality. It's like nothing's changed. In any moment that you have, particularly a young black man, not only embracing stereotypes and taboos, but doubling down on them, which is really what gangster rap often is, even if you have that in the most sort of trite, recycled form, I do think that at some level that is still performing um, a kind of resistance. And that resistance, it flows through almost every form of Black American art, from work songs heard on the plantation to the prison camp. Oh, murder, murder, murder. Murder, murder, murder. Kill, kill, kill. It's been 20 years since the shooting at Club Mercedes, but Jamie and Monique, man, they're still haunted by that night. And remember, these are the two young women who say Mac did not fire a shot that night. But for them, Time hasn't been enough distance. They both moved away from St. Tammany Parish. Monique, she left the state of Louisiana altogether. I left because it was just too common for black men, boys, to be put in jail. I don't know any black man related and non-related. It's very few that I know that have not been through that system. Um, and I just, I didn't want to go through that with my sons. If my, you know, if a, if a teenager is caught with doing something that teenagers do, like underage drinking or, or just something minor, maybe smoke marijuana, you don't want to know that they're going to be shipped off for 10 years for that. I think that's, that's every parent's worst fear besides having to bury their child. I just had my first son who I am in, I'm terrified. I'm terrified for my son. I, I pray about that now. I'm starting, I started in the womb asking God to cover him because I see how easily it can happen to anyone and my son ain't no different. Next time on Louder Than a Riot, we discover who the real criminals of St. Tammany Parish are and we look at where the fight for Max freedom stands today. Were you surprised uh, when that appeal got denied? Every appeal that we filed, I really believe that this was the one. Now, this is a call from an independent aid, Louisiana Department of Corrections. That hope is really what has kept me going. Mm. But uh, at the end of the day, I want to be free more than This episode was written by Matt Ozug. Rodney, and me, Sydney Madden. Michael May edited this one. It was produced by Matt Ozug and Dustin DeSoto. With help from Adelina Lanciannese, Sam Leeds, and Babette Thomas. Our engineer is Josh Newell. Senior supervising producers are Rachel Neal and Nigeri Eaton. And shout out to the bigwigs, Steve Nelson, Lauren Anki, and Anya Grunman. Original music by Casa Overall. Dope artists, y'all definitely should check him out. Additional scoring by Ramteen Arablui. Appreciate you, folks. Our digital editor is Jacob Gans. 
Our fact checker is Will Chase. And thanks to everybody who lent their time and expertise on this one, especially Andrea Dennis and Eric Nielsen. They wrote the book on this. Hit us up on Twitter. We're at Louder Than a Riot. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And to follow along with the music you heard in this episode, check out the Louder Than a Riot playlist on Apple Music and Spotify now. And if you want to email us, it's louder at npr.org.